entrepreneurship is not about just making money. The entrepreneurial spirit is about how do I take an obscure idea through execution and impact while dealing with extreme risk and uncertainty? Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, my guest is a Kuwaiti refugee and former engineer turned serial entrepreneur, Lloyd Lobo. Lloyd co-founded and built Boast AI, a company helping businesses access R&D tax credits and innovation incentives to 10 million of ARR. He also co-founded Traction, a nonprofit that brings together more than 120,000 entrepreneurs and innovators to share lessons on scaling startups. Lloyd sold a majority stake in Boast AI to a growth capital firm, which not only allowed him and his co-founder to create the personal liquidity they both needed for the next stages of their lives, but they were also able to maintain a substantial portion of equity in the business to potentially benefit even more from a future exit. Lloyd is full of poignant entrepreneurial and personal anecdotes to succeed in business and in M&A. In this episode, Lloyd shares his views on how outsourcing the financial role to professionals helps when it's time to sell a business, how bootstrapping allowed him to sell on his timetable, and why building community is a key differentiator and value driver in any business, and even more when it's time to sell. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lloyd Lobo. Lloyd, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been uh, really excited to talk to you. I know you have a couple of really exciting companies that you are running right now. One, you took in some growth equity to create an exit for yourself and your partner. I want to learn a lot about that, but I just I love your background as engineer, a kind of growth hacker, marketing guy into entrepreneurship. I know you have a lot to share on the types of capital raising that occur and the ways to actually create liquidity. I thought there was so much here in your background to share that we had Mark Cuban booked for this spot, but when I got you, I immediately bumped him. So thank you for being here. <laughs> You're too kind, man. Uh, hope, hopefully someday <laughs> I'll live up to Mark Cuban's stature. And uh, you know, my my really good friend Melissa Kwan had a great time on the show, and and she spoke very highly of you. And rather than asking for for an intro. You know, I, I save the favors for when I really need it. I just yeah. hit you up. And it works. Like, it always works when you hit people up. Oh, thank you. Melissa was awesome. We had her on a couple of weeks ago. We were huge fans. The the guts it took to to keep her startups going to the point of finally finding real success. Uh, she's really inspirational. I think our, our listeners definitely learned a ton uh, from her episode. So if you haven't listened to that, really look up Melissa Kwan. Uh, she's fantastic. Well, well, thank you for being here. Let's start at the beginning, right? You came out uh, basically of school, and you were an engineer to start, and career started from there. Why don't you take us, take us from the beginning? Definitely. So I graduated engineering. Firstly, I finagled myself into engineering. Okay, as a refugee of the Gulf War, uh, never into school, didn't finish high school, but like bunked all my high school exams, so don't have a high school diploma. Started applying to university when we got to Canada. And uh, one school said, hey, why don't you come in and, and test for, you know, give us the tests, right? There's no SATs in Canada. So I wrote the test and they're like, where are your transcripts? I'm like, there's political unrest in Kuwait, so I'm waiting for them. They said, why don't you start the semester and send it over because your tests were really good. And they forgot to follow up, man, and I graduated engineering. So that's luck. Luck, you know? 
luck is always on the other side of rolling the dice, right? The, the thing is more people don't roll the dice more often enough. And if you keep rolling and rolling, maybe you'll get a six once in a while. But so I graduate engineering and you know, I always had this love to take risk, to try something that you know, is not the typical, not the status quo. And so I didn't want to do a desk job. Like I didn't want to code. It was not my jam all through college. And I think that love came from being a refugee of the Gulf War. So I think I was like eight or nine years old when the war hit. I went down the building with my dad and I see all these concerned faces. And unlike 2023, where everyone belabors on the problem and it perpetuates and bad news just carries on and festers. Back then, there was no phone, there was no internet. And this country had been struck by a war and security had lapsed. But as soon as I, we looked around the building, everyone started coming together with solutions like, hey, I'll guard the building from 12 to 6. And somebody's like 6 to nine, six to 12, I'll guard it. Somebody's like, I'll organize food supplies. And somebody else is like, if you have displaced family members, I got space at home or I'll organize a, in different shelters. And every building became a sub-community and the word of mouth carried and carried and carried and it became one of the largest grassroots movements that evacuated the people to safety, communicated building to building to building, the word of mouth that got to embassies, that got to countries and took us from Kuwait to Jordan to, Bag to Baghdad to Jordan, refugee camps and whatnot. That experience actually taught me two things, the power of bringing people together to create big impact and the entrepreneurial spirit. Because entrepreneurship is not about just making money. The entrepreneurial spirit is about how do I take an obscure idea through ex execution and impact while dealing with extreme risk and uncertainty. There's no bigger risk and uncertainty than oh, evacuating yeah. people in a war struck country. And the funny thing is the mission felt so big. The purpose felt so big. And every little person, like I was a little kid, man, but the little work that I did, the people around me made me feel like I was driving that big mission. And that's what great leaders do, right? They cascade uh -huh. purpose where even the smallest, the lowest common denominator feels like they're driving the mission. It's like, it's like President Kennedy was walking the halls at NASA at 12 or at midnight or something. And he sees a janitor sweeping the floors and he asks, what are you doing at this hour? And he says, the janitor says, sir, I'm putting a man on the moon. And that's how I felt as a little kid. Like I am like alongside everyone guarding the building or moving things, moving supplies. I'm like, I am evacuating the people to safety. That's, that's what I, I felt like a little Rambo, right? And so that entrepreneurial spirit drove me. So I graduate university with engineering and now I don't want to get a job in engineering. I asked somebody, hey, if I wanted to be an entrepreneur someday, what's the best skill I could learn? Family person, and back then people wouldn't use the term entrepreneur or startup, right? It was just mm -hmm. like businessman, businesswoman, business person. And so I asked, like, hey, if I want to be a business person, what would I do? And they said, sales. Get a job mm -hmm. in sales. Sales is everything, sales fixes everything. From convincing your spouse that you're not going to bring money to convincing employees to work harder to convincing customers to investors it's all communication and selling and so i said to myself well if communication is such a big part of being a business person then what would force me right more than selling to do this in and out like you know these days we talk to people who say hey man I, i'm really bad at writing but they never write 
If you're mm -hmm. really bad at something and never do it, you'll always be bad at that, right? So I'm like, if I want to be a good communicator and, and sales is a big part of an entrepreneur's journey, then I better get a sales job, right? I know it's going to suck and it's going to be hard and, and I'm an awkward engineer. I'm not the best public speaker. It's going to be very hard, but I'm going to do it. So I start applying for account executive jobs, sales jobs. I'm like Xerox to like, I think I interviewed at Xerox, I interviewed at some of the biggest companies and small companies that wouldn't get a job because people hmm. just couldn't figure out why a person who graduated software engineering is applying for this job back then. Mm -hmm. And so then I fought my way and begged my way to convince a startup, a very small company. Back then, nobody would use the word startup. It was like this telecom company to give me a job in cold calling. And I never forget, man. I, I practiced four hours for my first cold call session. I finally get to the connect with the decision maker and yeah. I hang up. And everyone is laughing <laughs> around me and I hang up. But you know what happened was if you want to become a better communicator or better at anything, put yourself in an environment that forces you to do that something over and over again because systems yep. eat motivation for breakfast, right? Many people are not self-motivated, but if you're in that environment that requires you to do it to survive, then you're going to be forced to do it. So I'm like, I hung up once, but if I need to get paid, I'm going to have to keep doing this. So I kept doing it and doing it and doing it and it got better and it got better and I got really good at it. And honestly, there's no other job that forces you to polish your messaging, pivot on the fly, negotiate, model the tone of the person you're talking to. So that experience was formative for me as an entrepreneur. What's funny though, is my parents are from India. They were born in India, raised in India before they went to Kuwait. And, you know, there's this thing in Indian cultures is you got to be a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer, one of those things, right? And so when I graduated software engineering and now I'm making 30K dialing for dollars, they have lost it. They're like, Dude, our like friends' kids are at Microsoft <laughs> and you're making 30K a year cold calling. Like we can't even tell them what to do. Fast forward today, everything I have, I think that skill was a key, key driver. Because as you think about it, communications is the rails of everything we do. Without communication, you can't connect. And if you can't connect with people, you'll always have an empty room. Well, thank you for sharing that. I do think that sometimes people look down on that first sales job and it's an incredible asset to an entrepreneur. And I would think you having that engineering background and then that ability to communicate and convince through a lot of reps at sales was really training you for entrepreneurship. Right? You got to be able to sell, whether it's that first customer or sell your company in the end. Right, You got to be able to present something that really connects with somebody else. So I can understand how that was uh, you know, incredibly valuable to you. All right. So, so you got the skill set under you. What's the next step? So I think the next step from there, what happened was, so I was dating this girl who's now my wife since we were teenagers and she went, she got her med school in the States. So I had to move to the States. Mm -hmm. So I started applying like this was this first job in my engineering school was in Canada. So I started applying to jobs. I'm like, I graduated, you know, luck would have it. I got, you know, the only school that would take me was the one I went to in, in Canada. So now I graduated, got this first job, simultaneously applying to jobs in the U.S. She was in New Jersey in medical school. 
I got a job as a sales rep at a tech startup in New Jersey now, a small tech company, right? And I was excited. I'm like, oh, this is moving up. And it looked like mm-hmm. an enterprise tech company basically sold supply chain software to large enterprise companies. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up getting that job, bump 50K plus commissions, go there. I land there and then I realize like it didn't have a repeatable, scalable process. And so my job involved talking to customers, figuring out what to build, then wireframing <laughs> and, and writing specs for the developers and what to build. And then, mm-hmm. oh, guess what? I also needed to figure out the marketing side and the product marketing materials. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> like this is crazy. But you know what? Working alongside the C-suite and the founders is also an indispensable experience if you want to be a founder someday. And I, and I tell people, like, if, if you don't have the risk appetite to start a company, like, there's no substitute for doing. Like, you can read 100 books, but the only way you'll learn is do. But say you, you don't have the risk appetite to do and you want to get that risk appetite. Go into sales, pick up the phone, dial for dollars, then go work for a founder. And so this was fortunate because I didn't have the liberty of quitting. For years, I tried to get a job in the States, tried to get into school in the States, but I, you know, I couldn't be with the love of my life. And that was the best decision ever. We're married right now. I'm everything I am because of her because she paid the bills <laughs> for so long and she encouraged me and she drove me. But I take that job. So I'm like, I can't quit. Two months in, the chief operating officer who I was reporting to quit, they didn't replace him. So now I am like in this position where I have more autonomy and more, I guess, responsibility. So I'm talking to customers, big customers, Tiffany, Armani, Simon & Schuster, big brands, Tory Burch, walking their floors, figuring out their pain points, the consultative sale, and driving long locations from New Jersey to, to where not, like you name it, upstate New York, all over the place. And in the car, because I don't like reading, it was very hard for me to read growing up. I would listen, like listen to Spin Selling by Neil Rackham or Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People or Influence by Robert Cialdini over and over. And I would then implement that as I'd go, right? Four hour drive, three hour drive, two hour drive, then go and implement it in the conversation. It was, it was an epic experience. Then come back and then write down the specs like these are their pain points and this is how you would spec it, wireframe it. And so the wireframing and the, and the software design I learned from engineering school, but this consultative sales, I had to just listen to all these audiobooks. And then a lot of what I searched on sales content online and marketing content online was always HubSpot. So HubSpot had this inbound marketing community mm-hmm. and, and that was cool. So I started listening to their inbound marketing content, inbound marketing certification, joined their community, started going to meetups. And so in a way, like, you know, after uh, the Gulf War community, this inbound marketing community became my my community. I learned everything through there. And, you know, that's a program that even taught me the value of consistency because one of the courses in there was from Gary Vaynerchuk. And he was chubby little Mm -hmm. young guy, did a two-hour course on video marketing, and he was so bullish on the power of video. Mm-hmm. And this was, what, 2005? Imagine how it's played out for him. If I oh, only yeah. bet on video back then and kept doing it and doing it, he never stopped, right? Or you look mm-hmm. at Mr. Beast. He never stopped. He's, he's an iconic brand. Or you look at 
you know, who the single richest person in SaaS is, is Larry Ellison, kept going, like just didn't stop. Or in investing, it's Warren Buffett, just consistency, right? So that's where I learned probably the second lesson in, in life is consistency. Compound interest in, on consistency is what mm-hmm. we call overnight success, like keep doing it. And, sure. and the first one was communication. But that experience was very profound for me because now I'm combining communication with creation and consistency. And so kept talking to customers, figuring out what to build, wireframe provide, and just kept doing it on repeat. Mm-hmm. And then my wife got into residency in Philly. So I joined another startup there. And now I moved up from sales to running sales and marketing and carried on with that HubSpot community. And then one day when life was stressful, so I, I had this one moment in life when life was really stressful at work. And my best friend who was my partner in every project in university, Alex, he calls me and he says, Hey, I want to do a startup in the R and D tax credit space. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, I jumped at the opportunity to work with him. So Alex's story was after engineering, he got into Johnson and Johnson's engineering leadership program, which is very rare thing. And then he did a startup, which didn't work out and felt he needed to study accounting and finance. So he studied that and his unique combo of accounting and finance took him in the world of innovation funding. So globally, hundreds of billions of dollars are given by governments to fund companies that build new products or improve existing products, not necessarily mm-hmm. white lab code R&D, but product development. The problem is with anything government, it's a cumbersome application process It's prone to frustrating audits and receiving the money takes a long time. And so he was doing this for a big four accounting firm. And he said, we should work in this together. And, uh, and I was at the startup in Philly now, and I used to work till nine, 10 o'clock, which is fine. My wife was in residency working a hundred hour weeks anyway. Mm-hmm. And one day I start going home at six in the evening and I get a call from the CEO of the company or, or an email from the CEO of the company saying, Hey man, I used to like it when you're in the office till nine, 10. I'm worried that last two, three days you've been going home at six. What's causing you to go home? Your wife works a hundred hour weeks anyway. And I was like, man, like, you know, my parents were visiting and I hadn't seen them in a while. That's why I was going mm-hmm. home at six. So when mm-hmm. I, when I got home that night, Alex called me, he's like, I want to do the startup. I'm like, I don't care what we do, man. As long, <laughs> as long as we build a company we want to work for, I get the opportunity to build a company that I want to work for, I'm in. And so that's how that journey started with, with Alex. But, you know, going back to the CEO, you know, we're, we're good friends now. I'm also an angel investor in his company, but he was driven by a lot of stress. You know, a lot of times what happens is as founders, we take any kind of capital that's available to us and we don't realize the strings it comes with. And strings doesn't all necessarily mean what's written in the document because sometimes influences is more dangerous than power, than written power. You may be the CEO of a company and have controlling share, but if your investors are on your board, they can stress the F out of you, right? And make it difficult till you burn out. And like they say, right? Shit flows down the leg, man. It it then goes to the employees (laughs) and, and, and it goes to everyone, right? Like if the CEO is stressed and burnt out, especially young CEOs, it takes a lot of fortitude to, to shield your team from it. Then yeah. it becomes like, man, I want all you guys working. Why aren't you working? Get more clients, get more sales because that's what the investors are telling you. And so 
after that experience, I was in, I, I moved to San Francisco. My wife got into Stanford and uh, she got a fellowship there. So moved to, moved to San Francisco. And then Alex was in Canada, actually. So shuttled a bit between San Francisco and Canada and started Boast. And in parallel to Boast, we worked on a couple other companies, did a chatbot in 13, 2013, 14. <laughs> that failed. I mean, nobody knew the term chatbot back then. Then uh, worked on worked with Bessemer. They incubated a company called Speakeasy, which was an AI-driven sales assistant. They in, invested $6 million. That didn't work out. In, uh, we did an events company because I was good at planning events from you know doing so many events to get customers over time. And uh, the third co-founder ran away with a quarter million in profits, locked us out of our accounts. We had to sue him because he announced another Ugh. conference to the same list. But then he didn't have the money because he used all that money to pay for the <laughs> conference. So then in installments over six, seven months after lawyer fees, he paid us $50,000. And he thought it would like never catch a break. And then we had Boast going on in parallel as a consulting firm that we said, you know what, all these things failed, but we learned a ton. Let's turn this into a software company because the benefit was we already had customers paying us for the service to so do it manually. So we knew like what we could automate, we knew the exact flow, and that was the journey we went. So 2017, we incorporated the, the consulting firm into Boast.ai, and the journey from 2017 to 20 was a great one. And uh, during the pandemic, we got approached by a growth equity firm that offered us a great deal that we couldn't refuse, and life was, life was good. That's just awesome. The whole background, thank you for, for sharing it all. It just feels like step after step, you're upskilling yourself to have that moment when Alex calls you and says, right, we got to start a company. And you've got the skill set now. You got the confidence. You're in a situation that you want to get out of. I've been in that situation before. And so this sounds like this was the right time to take that risk-adjusted jump that you talk about. What's interesting is I similarly, my wife got her residency out in San Francisco too. And it was one of the reasons I ended up going out there, right? So now you've put yourself into the kind of, you know, entrepreneurial mecca, right? And you're seeing all of those companies starting venture, just venture dollars pouring in, you know, in every coffee shop around the city and down to Palo Alto. So that must have been a kind of amazing experience. And you're starting a bunch of companies, you're working with Bessemer. It just, it, it, awesome. All, all of such, such a, a great experience. I love, I can visualize what you're going through. I'd love to hear the eventual, you creating success, Boast AI. Maybe you could take us through when you started to realize, wow, this is going to be successful up to the moment where you say, maybe it's time to take some chips off the table. Can you talk a little bit about that? It felt like you're barreling into a dark tunnel and there's no light. And then one day it shows up. You know, wow. there's luck and risk are two sides of the same coin. And luck is the 10% that flips the 90 in your favor. The, the thing is, a lot of people don't keep flipping, right? Flipping is the consistency. You got to keep flipping, mm -hmm. flipping, flipping. And I'm not saying doing a business is about luck. But if you keep taking chances and taking chances, you're going to hit luck. You're going to hit heads. If you keep rolling the dice and keep rolling the dice and rolling the dice, you're going to hit a six, 
right? Mm-hmm. And so it's the, the thing is, you got to never stop, right? We didn't stop. We kept going and we kept going and we kept going. So one thing was really interesting. When we started Boast, uh, first as a services company, we kept dialing for dollars. That's what we needed to do. Mm-hmm. Kept, kept asking people to buy our service. There's a few frameworks I'll talk about as a result of this. We called manufacturing companies, we called oil and gas companies, we called construction companies saying, hey man, we can get you a bunch of money from the government. You got to give us your technical data. They're like, who are you? Like two guys I've never heard of. Mm-hmm. And even if the service exists, why didn't my accountant tell me? I'm going to go do it with my accountant. And we started going to manufacturing events and oil and gas events and construction events and we just couldn't vibe with them. And we're like, ah, man, we just feel lost here. Like, it's like they don't even want to talk to us. The conversations feel so forced. So then we started going to every startup event in the neighborhood, like every tech startup event, participating in hackathons and whatnot. And we found very quickly that, you know, we're all in the same like age bracket, life bracket, you know, and the conversations resonate because we have something similar to talk about. We're starting a company, they're starting a company, we're going through similar struggles. But the one thing we realized very quickly in 2012 that every event we went through while it was great at connecting us with other founders, they were all high-level CEO platitudes. This was a time where podcasting didn't wasn't huge, mm-hmm. where LinkedIn wasn't huge as a distribution platform for business content, Instagram, none of that. It was events and blogs, right? Events and blogs, events and blogs. And all the events we were going to was high-level CEO platitudes. They bring like a CEO of like a multi-hundred million dollar company or a 50, hundred million dollar company to talk about how they did it. Now that is not helpful for somebody who's at zero to one, right? It's not helpful for us, anyone else. It's good aspirational. So we said, hey, you know what? There's something here. What if, you know, as a function of working and being around startups, we know a lot of people who are maybe not at 100, but we can bring the people at 510 to talk to the ones at zero or one, mm-hmm. exactly on the steps, how I got my first customer, how I developed my product, how I got my first angel investor, how I landed my first enterprise sale. Like these frameworks that somebody at 50 can't teach you because they're far surpassed it. So we said, we'll, we'll do these meetups because now we understand this ICP really well. So then our messaging changed from, hey, buy my stuff, our ICP changed from going after manufacturing and ICP's ideal customer profile from manufacturing, construction, oil and gas to startup founders at zero one with some spend, right? And they're spending mm-hmm. some money on building their company, but don't know how to get to the next step and started hosting these events. Founder events, like how do you get your first customers? How do you get your first investment? And the first event we did, like 10 people showed up. Next event we did, 20 people showed up. 25, 30. One day we had 200 people show up at the co-working space, hijacked the whole co-working space. And then the guys who ran the co-working space are like, you can't do this here anymore. It's no longer a small meetup. When you hijack the whole co-working space with the aisles of desks, this is now turned into a conference. Yeah. And what's interesting is that, right, combined with another gap we found in the market. That was a time where you know, so this was, we started the business Boast AI in Canada. So it was a small market in Canada, in Calgary. This was a time where the local press wasn't giving a lot of attention to startups. So we're like, huh, there's another opportunity here. If we try to build social proof on our blog and write content on our blog, the SEO is going to take years to develop. How do we get 
the brand rub of the big people, right? So the brand rub of the big speakers, like five, 10 million in revenue speakers, we got by hosting our own events. So we got their social proof. As a result of getting their social proof, we looked credible. And so mm -hmm. we would start getting conversations towards doing business. So that community was building. And we're like, now we to blog, contacted the local newspaper and asked to give us a column. The local newspaper said, no, no, eventually after much following up, like I followed up, like, you know, reached, hit you up a couple of times, right? I followed up with the newspaper a couple of times, the largest newspaper group in Canada. And they said, fine, eventually I'll give you a blog, right? And, and the way I even got that blog was first I blogged for some second tier blogs in Canada, drove a lot of mm -hmm. traffic to them and send it to the newspaper. And the newspaper like, oh, this looks like it's got a lot of likes and shares. Fine, we'll give you a blog. Then I wrote a column called Startup of the Week. And the first column, Startup of the Week, that I wrote on their blog, I shared with an entrepreneur who virtually made it go viral at that time. It got shared so much on Twitter and everything because that's what entrepreneurs do. They're not getting a voice. Mm -hmm. So they shared with their family and friends. And everyone's like, oh, Calgary Herald is launching a Startup of the Week column. The editor, senior editor, calls me. I have like missed calls from him. Then email saying, if you commit to writing this every week, in the newspaper, on the blog, we will run it in print. I won't pay you, but we will run it in print. I'm like, don't pay me. And so what happened, the effect of that was now Startup of the Week became a weekly column in print. And every Monday at 6 a.m., an entrepreneur is going to the convenience store to pick that newspaper, take a photograph, share it with other entrepreneurs, share it with their family, share it with the community, and those things started going viral. Mm -hmm. I wrote that column for two and a half three years straight while doing these meetups and events. And that social proof of now a high domain ranking website from the news, which is the news is the highest authority website, right? Always. Coupled with the social proof of the speakers we'd bring to the events, that one-two combo brought us not only customers, but partners who would mm -hmm. refer us business and you know helped us get those early social proof early customers first 100 customers in a way came through the word of mouth and direct customers and then eventually turned into a large community that we run called traction which is today 120,000 subscribers we have a podcast we have a youtube but a lot of meetups and a big conference where every major ceo from twilio to zoho to atlassian's president Uber's old previous CEO, Travis, has come to one of our events. And that's what it evolved. And what's funny is as we got to 10 million ARR, we didn't have a marketing team, man. It was these events Incredible. That, that, that drove it. And in fact, during the pandemic, when everything was closed, they had an open window and we hosted an event. And this growth equity firm through a partner that we knew said, hey, you know what? You always invite VCs on panels. I want to suggest you invite these growth equity guys. I'm like, I mean, they seem like PE. Like, why do, why should we invite? He's like, trust me, man, they're good guys. So we invite them. They participate on the panel. It goes well. I get an email saying, hey, would you be interested in joining our venture partner network? We had a great time at this. I'm like, fine, I'll hop on a call. I take a meeting with everyone. I hop on a call, really nice people. The fund is Radiant Capital out of New York. Uh, the founder, one of the founders came out of Bain Capital. So, you know, solid background as well. Great conversation. He's like, hey, would you like to join our venture partner network? We'll give you carry in exchange for deal flow. You have such a great community. 
and we wow. met a lot of like good founders. And you know, I'll, I'll get into in a second what growth equity is and the difference from venture and, and PE. But I'm like, listen, man, I don't have the time. I have a business to run. This community thing we just do to pay it forward, and it's been a big driver for our business as a result of paying it forward. So it's like, what does your business do? So I explained, and he's like, what? You're selling $100 bills for $20? <laughs> and you got such great gross margins, and you have no marketing spend? Can we, can we invest? Would you be interested in saying, like, how are you capitalized? I'm like, customer revenue. And can we invest? And I'm like, listen, we're not in, interested in taking capital. My co-founder is dead against it. Like, you know, Alex always said, as soon as you know you can turn one into three, you take it. But still, bringing on an investment partner is a marriage. Like, mm -hmm. why would you invite somebody else into your marriage? Would you want to complicate your life? And on the other end, my wife's like, you know, if you do another zero-sum game, like you've only worked at small companies that took investor money that went bankrupt from that company in New Jersey to the company in Philly to like the Bessemer company, all venture back, right? And they all didn't yeah. work out. And and the one before in, in Canada the, where I was cold calling, right? They all went down the drain. So she's like, how do you know you'll do this and it's going to succeed? She's like, if you do this, She's like, Alex is very strong-willed. So one, you can't convince him. Two, even if you manage to convince him, remember, if it becomes a zero-sum game, you're going to have to get a job at like Oracle or Salesforce or some stable company because I can't keep paying the bills at home. It's really hard. And so I'm like, okay. And then I asked these guys like, yeah, man, we're not going to take investor money. So that was in my head when we were having this conversation. And he's like, sure, like, we're not VC. So I'm like, what are you, PE? Like, you know, the second company I worked at in New Jersey was a PE company, PE back company, PE hustle. Yeah. We know the drill, right? Like long due diligence. They come in, they want to run your company. They, they drain you out, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, we're growth equity. I'm like, what is that? He's like, we want to invest in companies that are moderately growing with a clean cap table that are profitable and we want to return, say, four to seven X our investment in four to seven years. And so I'm like, why would I take your money? He's like, because we invest in profitable companies. The founders can take the bulk of the funding to liquidate themselves and de-risk themselves. So we'll let you take money off the table. So you de-risk yourself in the short term, create comfort because as bootstrap founders, we know how stressed out your families are. And then you'll have enough skin in the game so you can play the long game. And when he threw out the numbers, I was like blown away. So mm -hmm. immediately my first call was call Alex and he's like, yeah, this is legit. I researched them. And then, you know, uh, they had a partner in San Francisco, met him, had a few conversations and Within weeks, it was a term sheet, took a couple months, and I can dive into why instead of a 30-day close, yeah. it took like a 60 or 75-day close. But the deal went through. It was a great experience. We got two board seats. We sold, I think, 52% or so. It made us, I mean, for me, I hadn't seen that kind of money on both sides of family and, and neither has Alex. So it was life-changing. And you know, they've been, they've been great partners. And so I, I tell everyone now that, listen, you got to understand what your values are and what you want 
before you go into any partnership. Great relationships are built on great alignment. Most founders don't ask themselves these basic questions. What is your personal definition of success? Don't say money. Write down what do you imagine yourself doing? What is your personal? Money is, success is not money. If it doesn't buy you what you draw joy from, money doesn't matter because you'll burn out. And then, you know, with our Western diets and high stress life, you'll be, you'll have all the money in the world at 65 and not be functional. So mm -hmm. don't ever write down money. What is your personal definition of success? What do you see yourself doing day in, day out that brings you joy? How much money do you want in your bank account to make that happen? How long do you want to run the company for? Is there a version of the company you don't see yourself working for or you don't want to work for? And is there an argument for taking money or not based on that? I think that's very important because on the other side, you got to understand the motivation of investors. Venture investor wants to, like a VC investor, mm -hmm. wants to significantly outsize, deliver an outside return to LPs. LPs invest because they want a return. Now put yourself in the LP shoes, man. Are you going to buy lottery tickets if it doesn't return you? Like a venture is almost like a lottery. Or would you put your money in the S&P 500? It was your heart. We, entrepreneurs curse VCs a lot that they put pressure on everything. But partially we are as founders to blame also, right? We polish our decks showing these multi-billion dollar outcomes. Why did you show that? You showed that because you wanted their investment. Do you understand their perspective? They raise money from LPs who like our institutions, who run endowment funds that drive research and, and other social good, or maybe not, or maybe buy big boats. Regardless, it's somebody's hard-earned money <laughs> that goes into this fund. And rather than putting it in the S&P 500 or some index that's like growing 10% year over year, it was a safe bet. They put it in this fund to drive outsized returns. So the VC's job is only one thing. I got to find deals that drive outsized return. Now, if you if you polish the turd so hard that it looks like it's going to be outside outsized returns, but then like two, three board meetings in, the reality sinks in, it's your fault too, right? Yeah. Great companies, yep. great relationships are built on great alignment. You will not find that alignment for you until you write these questions down. What is my personal definition of success? How long do I want to run the company for? How much money do I need in my bank account to drive that personal definition of success? Is there a version of the company I don't want to work for? And I'm telling you, the more founders I talk to now, as like I'm, yeah. I'm on three boards, I'm an angel investor in 18 companies, the more founders I talk to, misalignment with investors comes from this. They're like, oh, they're pressuring me. Well, I didn't know all this. Why didn't you know? Why did you polish the deck, right? And so the venture investors, it's clear. At a minimum... They want to 3x the fund, right? At a minimum. Yep. So then when you raise a seed round at a 20 million valuation, maybe that's palatable. When you raise your A at like 50, 60 million, it's also palatable. When you raise your B at a few hundred million valuation, it becomes hard. How many acquisitions are happening at 300, 400, 500 million? Very few. And then at that point, you sign up for an IPO or bust. So yep. what do you think is going to happen? You know, the media has perpetuated this addiction to unicorn porn. In reality, the world is run by horses, camels, and donkeys. In the last two years is a perfect example of des describing how this works. COVID hit. Everybody needed to digitally transform. Everybody. So if you are a startup, 
digitizing offline, you know, everyone needs to get Snowflake. They need to get Twilio. They need to get Shopify. They need to get Zoom. They need to get SendGrid. Boom, your growth is through the roof. They need to get yep. R&D funding. Boom, your growth is through the roof. 2020, 2021, if you didn't do it, you're not going to in 2022. The market didn't explode how people wanted to believe or founders wanted to believe. They just rolled forward the market a couple years. Mm -hmm. So hedge funds started coming in and investing in these startups, going crazy. You think the hedge funds didn't know that one company out of these would be maybe a multi-hundred billion dollar company. There would be one Airbnb one Uber that comes out of this as it did out of 2008. That was the bet. But behind, they leave a graveyard of startups. The founders didn't know this. Now the VCs driving into the FOMO started also investing. Then 2022 rolls around, interest rates rise, right? So this digital mm -hmm. transformation coupled with low interest rates flooded the capital in the market. 2002 growth rates, projections fell. Interest rates went up and every time interest rates go up stock market falls it's the correlation boom came crashing everything valuations fell there are so many unicorns that i know that are personal friends of mine or like pre-unicorns that have raised at multi-hundred million valuations raised hundreds of millions that can't grow and that can't raise if they raise they would wipe out their cap table and their growth rates doesn't warrant so as a founder when you raise at a certain valuation it's a promise that you're going to meet that valuation in 18 months. Yep. So think about what you're signing up for and if it meets your personal definition of success. And so growth equity aligns very well if you write down those questions. That, that was great, right? I appreciate the questions. I think, you know, for our audience, I want to jump in a little bit more on growth capital. So you didn't really understand what that was when you started talking with Radiant Capital, right? And the difference really between private equity and venture capital, I think, in a lot of people's minds is venture is minority investing. They are taking a minority stake in a company. Now, it doesn't mean that they won't have control over time, right? Even if it's not, I think you put it as like legal control, but it could be undue influence over the growth of the company and the decision the companies make. Private equity are usually control investments. So that's over 50%. Right? So they have the majority of the board seats. They are making the, the decisions. They make all the decisions. Now, in growth capital, most of the time, what we see is that word growth. They want the dollars they invest to go towards growth of a company. And then there's a little sliver in there that founders can kind of take off the table. They can de-risk their position. And a lot of times, you continue to run the company, and maybe the, the management team is supplemented. In your case, you were able to negotiate really a, a significant portion of this value coming right to you and Alex, right? So that's fantastic. I'd love to maybe understand how you negotiated that. And then two, you guys both made the decisions to take the company from where it is, which is 10 million of ARR approximately, maybe or eight at the time, 8 million of ARR. Is that about right? 
So I think this is a critical point because we talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who have great businesses. They're thinking about selling their businesses and we want them to understand what is the number that you need to achieve everything in your life that you want to achieve, like what would bring you happiness. And when you understand what that number is, then you can be very intentional about the type of transaction that you should be going for, right? And in your case, you knew your number and that growth equity provided this avenue to achieve your number and own almost half your business. You have what, like 38% of this business, you sit on the board, right? You're going to see another exit or another liquidity event for yourself at some point in the future. But you basically sped up what distributions would have had done for you year over year by going into this transaction. Does that sound right? Am I understanding that, it? That, that is exactly it. And the other okay. thing you got to think about is market conditions, right? Like, yes, um, yes. You know, the, you know, what Warren Buffett said is when the world gets optimistic you should worry and when the world is worried you got to get optimistic yep. so you know the world was behaving like drunk sailors and so you know alex has is always is like that he comes with that warren buffett mindset and so he's like man like anything can happen and think about it if we hadn't done that event during covid the window that opened yeah that's the one thing we kept doing and kept doing and kept doing even when covid shut down and we couldn't do a conference we asked all the speakers rather than doing a virtual summit, Hey, can we do a live AMA with you twice a week? And over COVID we did for two years that those live AMAs, which grew our community from 30,000 subscribers to hundred plus thousand subscribers. We kept doing it. And so the social proof for our growth was driven by doing a lot of events. Our salespeople were more like brokers of resources or BD people going in the community, either going to our events, going to partnered events or going to other people's events, and shaking hands and kissing babies. And they're the guys who help people. So it's easy yep. to get deals. So warm the deal flow with, you know, with content, with community, basically. And then it's easier to get, get your foot in the door. So when the events stopped, we started doing those events virtually online, mm -hmm. conversations online. So when the first window for an event opened, we did it. We were one of the first people to do in-person event. And that's, that's how they came to us. The, the luck yep. came. So the timing was good. And, you know, the worry always was, will this last, right? The burden hand yeah. is always worth two in the bush because the market go to shit. And like Alex always said, the market go to shit, which did end up happening, right? And so it's yes, like, yes. fortunately, we're in a business where we're giving people money. Mm -hmm. So our market's always good. But you could be in a situation where a lot more companies are going out of business. And sure. so now like less companies want to take that money, but regardless, we're typically against the market, but still there's always this worry. Right. And so if you can de-risk now, why not de-risk now? And, and then what happened exactly a year and a half later, it's all for us all to see what happened, right? Like yeah, yeah. The founders that didn't, they suffered even companies that raised at multi-billion dollar valuations, like under the shitter, a couple of companies got lucky because their founders took massive secondaries from hedge funds and whatnot. But yeah. You know, you you win the lottery once in a while, right? In in a situation like yeah. this. Lloyd, I think it's just, it's awesome. And there are a ton of lessons here. I think people are going to learn about growth equity and that option. I'd love to understand what life is like now after, you know, you hit your number. So, you know, that's the right transaction for you. You timed it well. What do you do as a board member? How do you see your company continuing to grow and what's your role in it? Before I dive into that, I want to share one piece of advice here as they're doing something like this, right? Number one is as bootstrap founders, we're very, very frugal in a lot of things. Yes. You want to understand what's your zone of genius and, and what's not. 
barrel down your zone of genius, but what's not outsource. I think one, one thing I, I regret not doing is outsourcing the finance work because it mm -hmm. stretched our due diligence to like 70 some odd days, uh, 60, 70 yeah. days. And yep. a lot of founders, what happens is like, you know, when you're a bootstrap founder, especially like us, we use the cheapest tools. Like we don't have a marketing automation system. So all the leads are coming through the database and then we're like picking and, and, and shoving it into sure. files. And we didn't have a CRM like Salesforce. We were using Zoho. In fact, we started as a services company. And by the way, especially in 2023, if you have an idea and you want to bootstrap, no better way than learn to sell and offer the service as consulting. Do that three or four times because you can't hide <laughs> behind buttons or toggles. Customers want outcome. They don't mm -hmm. want software. You don't want, you don't want marketing automation. You want more leads. You don't want a gym membership. You want to get a six pack. So offer it as a service through that. You will understand what it's like to sell consultatively, mm -hmm. what it's like to deliver first rate customer success and what it's like to deliver an outcome, not software. Then write down the process it took you and mm -hmm. automate it. And your initial product can be generative AI combined with like a no-code tool. Our first version, there was no AI back then or rudimentary. We use Zoho Creator and Zapier. But today you got like Bubble and you have ChatGPT and all these tools. Effectively, then it turns into, hey, I'm collecting data manually. I'm going to normalize that data and I'm going to apply it, uh, analyze it and apply workflow. So you can bootstrap a lot longer. So don't think you got to raise money to build products. As a bootstrap founder, your day one should be selling and understand the customer and delivering the outcome. So that is learning one. Learning two is understand your zone of genius and outsource other things when the time is right. And no better thing you can outsource when you're doing a deal like this is your financials. Like find yep. the, ask four or five people who did deals and who the best finance person is and outsource this work to them because they have teams and they know how to present your numbers and your data to investors and do it, do yourself that service. It'll, I can't stress this enough, like biggest regret because we were like spending hours going through customer files and trying to do this, man. it's just stressful, right? Like you don't need it, right? You, you have a hundred things and your finance person will be enabled to show your vision and how you're meeting that vision with the numbers. And they've done it before. Like they've seen this movie before. Don't, don't try to do things that's not your expertise. And usually when you're a bootstrap company, you can't afford a multi hundred thousand dollar CFO anyway. So you're making do with like people who haven't done that before. So that is two pieces of advice. That, that's that's awesome. I, I got to lean into the, particularly the, the second one, right? The finance piece. And so we work with uh, companies that are thinking about exiting or founders who receive inbound interest, right? There's a strategic partner out there. They call and they say, we're interested in buying you. And inevitably, the financial arm of that company is far behind the rest of the product and the management team's ability to sell and market everything else, right? So we've really kind of taken upon ourselves to say, hey, we can help clean that up and we outsource that financial arm of that company very early on before we bring you to the investment bankers, the m and attorneys. And we've found that extraordinarily helpful because when you go to market, you really have one shot to excite that buyer. And when all your financials are really showing incredibly well, it's well described, it's understood, there are no red flags. And if there are, they're, they're understood and explained. Uh, you sit so far above everybody else in the market. And so now you're the one that sits on, on top of the, the stack 
lack of opportunities that buyers have, you create the most competition, you drive the outcome and the highest purchase price. So it's such a great point to say you should be outsourcing that. And we've seen it time and time again that we are starting to offer that service right out of the gates for founders. And it is not difficult. It is just a call and a decision to outsource that. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, tell us a little bit if, if I appreciate all the advice, but because you went through this relatively unique transaction, at least unique for our audience, what is it like on the other side? Because I feel like you're getting to do the things that you are the genius at even more rather than having to do everything in a company to build it. Can you tell us Definitely. about that? You know, initially it was hard for me. I, I'll admit, okay. probably not as hard for my co-founder. I was hard because... I prioritize the business over everything else. Like I put family, because think about it. Our business was community led, right? Yep. We built this community of founders called Traction. The reason even we called it Traction and not Boast was because it was tied to the greater aspiration of founders. We help founders get money from the government. Why do they need the money? To build great products, to innovate faster. Why do they need that? To create impact, to get traction. And so we call that community Traction. And so I spent a lot of time doing that. A lot of my energy was either on the front-facing side, marketing, partnerships, product, and being out there in the community. And I had neglected the family for a very, very long time. So after this transaction happened, you know, I didn't take leaving the day-to-day as well. Like okay. I think I, I felt lost for a little bit. Um, I, I got depressed. I started traveling <laughs> to different places, seeking the lull that I... I had in my life because I was always surrounded by community all my life. And I suddenly yeah. felt the community was leaving me. But then when things got better, you know, we moved out of San Francisco. We still have the place there. We've rented it out, uh, spent the summers there. But me and my wife and three kids, we moved to Dubai last August after our annual conference and just wanted to explore a different place where people look at work and life very differently. Okay. And we traveled a bunch. We could have lived in Europe and any number of places. But I think one of the criteria about how similar it is to the United States in terms of sort of vibe, right? And, and Dubai feels like Miami meets Singapore. Is there a community feel? Is it safe? The other thing is like help. This is a country of uh, land of convenience. Everything from your groceries to your gasoline, to your doctor, your Cairo, everything comes home, everything is done for you. So it created a lot of convenience. It basically put me in flow state. <laughs> and so I love being here. It's a great community, vibe country. A lot of people and friends I know since childhood or even from the States, Canada, have moved here. So it was a, it was a place we came, we spent a month here and we said, we want to move here. And mm -hmm. so life has been that transition to the board. Now sit on two other boards, one public company, one uh, Jason Lemkin recently was gracious enough to invite me on one of his company's boards. And, and that was life. And in my spare time, I decided to write a book. It's called From Grassroots to Greatness, 13 nice. Rules to Build Iconic Brands with Community-Led Growth. This book will be out on September 12th, but on pre-sale, it topped a number of new release charts. And here, you know, as I looked back and I said, hey, I got to do something. All my life, I've been like running, running. It feels weird. Like how much will you hang out on the beach? Dubai has great beaches, but how long will you hang out on the beach and work out and do nothing? I mean, as someone who's gone like doing 80, 100 hour weeks, doing nothing is hard. So I said I needed some purpose. And as I look back at my journey, 
my childhood summers were spent in the slums of India. My mom lived there, my mom, my grandparents, and she grew up there. Refugee of the Gulf War, then came to Canada, moved to the US, joined the HubSpot sales community, then built this traction community through startups, right, to building mm -hmm. Boast. And then when I left the day-to-day -day at Boast, I felt depressed. I felt like a void in my life. Mm -hmm. And how I got back to sanity was also a fitness community, the Peloton community combined with a bunch of fitness friends that I made. So I'm like, hey, man, the only time I felt lull in my life was when I didn't have the community. And so I started rewatching all the content from our conferences, talked to so many community members, started researching every single iconic brand. Right. And it's like, you're curious when you have time, you're like, okay, sure. I have this experience, but I'm not, I didn't have a billion dollar exit. So nobody wants to listen to me. Let's see if there's commonality. And as I researched and looked and looked, I found something very interesting from Christ to CrossFit, every seemingly obscure idea that eventually became a global phenomenon, four steps in common, every obscure idea from Christ to CrossFit that went from <laughs> this obscure idea to becoming an enduring long-term global phenomenon, right? Yep. If people listen to you or buy your product or service, you have an audience. Mm -hmm. That audience comes together to interact with one another. It becomes a community. When the community comes together to create impact, that's much larger than the purpose of your product or profit. They create impact towards a much greater purpose that's beyond mm -hmm. your product or profit. It becomes a movement. And when the movement starts to have unwavering faith in its beliefs, in its purpose, through sustained rituals, it becomes a cult. And I saw this for Harley Davidson and HubSpot and Nike and Apple and you name it. So I'm like, I found it. Right. Community has been my DNA. Community is mm -hmm. how we bootstrap the company. Community is how our investors came. Community is what drives all these iconic brands. You can't build a cult. What stops you from taking an audience to a cult is community. And so I said, I'll write a book about community led growth and it'll 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 get what's in my system out there. And so I spent the yeah. time, all my spare time writing this book. And I think if I hadn't had this opportunity to create time in my life, I wouldn't be able to do this. Lloyd, it's uh, it's great advice, um, and I appreciate you kind of sharing with the painful side of it. You know, you sell the business, at least through you know growth equity channel, and now you got this void, right? You've been your whole life building community, and it clearly comes from you know a real place of passion, and so now that's missing. Uh, you know, we've had other founders. I remember Ryan Vaughn saying when I sold or I left that CEO role, it was like a gut punch. So uh, you know what we really recommend to founders is to really try to understand what your life will be like afterwards, plan that out, have a, be a few steps ahead. So it's not only what you're going to do with the money, but what you're going to do with yourself and your family and what really makes you tick. So it sounds like you found it again and you put it in the book after doing a bunch of research and you're probably off to building, you know, more communities and hopefully cults. We'll see. <laughs> At boast, you know, I think cult doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. There's a lot of good cult-like brands like, uh, like, uh, like Mr. Beast. But the one thing I felt was my journey at Bose stopped at building a community. And I think uh, the next thing I do, I'm a big fan of community-led businesses. You know, yeah. 
I, I, the next thing I do would love to take it to a movement. Let's see if it gets to a cult. And, and so I put a lot of love and research into this. The book's available on fromgrassrootstogreatness.com. I put it for 99 cents because my goal is not to make money. If you want to buy a collectible, we have the hard copy. It looks, it looks yeah. pretty cool. You'll see like it's, it's full color, right? And uh, you'll see nice. Jason Lemkin here and whatnot. It's a nice design book, but I put it for 99 cents. We'll have a very detailed notion workbook on how to go from, from like figuring out which ICP you should even target yeah. to building rituals, right? And, and I want everyone to know that we're in an age where CPMs are up. TikTok, Facebook, messaging is getting the same and same and same with ChatGPT. Yes, ChatGPT and generative AI has sped up something, but it's, it's sped up a lot of things. It's made, it's going to democratize and I guess make life easier for a lot of people. But what it's also doing is creating a sea of sameness. Now I know when people copy paste just yeah. blindly from ChatGPT. Yeah. Marketing is taking a bloodbath in 2023. People are tired of spam, the sea of sameness, clickbait, seeing like, you know, giving personal data to access crappy white papers. But if you look at it, the best brands know this and they've been building sustainable communities for a long time, right? We always latch on to the next innovative trend. But if you see what happened, first came the internet, then came the cloud. You used to say internet company, then cloud company, then social company, then mobile company. Now we're saying AI company. Mm -hmm. We'll stop eventually because every company will have AI in it. What I was trying to get with this book is yesterday's innovation always becomes tomorrow's commodity. But if you build a community, you won't become a commodity. And the perfect example to close this out with is in the 80s, Harley Davidson mm -hmm. almost went bankrupt. When the Japanese manufacturers commoditized electronics and started building their CBRs and that. And what did Harley Davidson's leadership do? They went and started communities. Community became a company strategy, not a marketing strategy. Leadership went mm -hmm. out there, started writer clubs. Employees became writers. Writers became employees. That proliferated through weekend writer rituals. They created the Save Harley movement, but then they created several campaigns like Donate to Breast Cancer and Autism. And today, the company is a global iconic brand worth over $7 billion. Not only that, you can recognize a Harley fan merely by what they're wearing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, don't latch on to the innovation because what drives the world eventually is people. People build companies, people build cultures, people drive innovation. Innovation will come and go. But I wanted to reignite the conversation as someone who built a successful, someone who helped build a successful AI company, mm -hmm. the AI company wouldn't exist if we didn't have a community. And so I wanted to reignite this conversation around the unique power of authentic human connections in molding enduring brands. Like I said, yesterday's innovation becomes tomorrow's commodity. But if you build a community, you won't become a commodity. Lloyd, man, I really appreciate this. This a conversation certainly went in a direction I wasn't expecting because, you know, we tend to focus on the exit. You had a very innovative exit that achieved all your goals, but everything you've shared today, I think our audience is just going to take a ton from. I'm certainly going to think a lot about it, definitely getting your book and certainly will really try to push that because you think just your message from your experience. And I think I really understand who you are people are just going to get a ton out of this. So thank you so much. Uh, let me just ask, is, is there any other uh, kind of last words of wisdom that you might have when it came to the exit? 
right? Was there some mistake that you made or another place where you got lucky that you want to kind of let people know about? You know what, man, when the due diligence goes from a 30 day close to a 70 day close, yeah. you like you're getting lucky every day. But I think a lot of those mistakes could be solved. I think, you know, 80% of the things success is, is from, comes from 20% of the things. And I feel like 80% of your frustrations come from 20% of the things you're stubborn about. And I, I think I think having a great financial partner clean up everything because what happens is, you know, when your financials get a little dodgy here and there are mistakes, mm -hmm. it just ca cast doubt on other things, right? Like Absolutely. Just, right. If one thing is like looks awful or not up to par, then they're then they start digging in other places. But I think like because think about it, it's like dating, okay? You don't go to a bar and ask somebody to marry you on first go. What do you optimize for? For the phone number. Why do you take the phone number so you can optimize for the text? A lot of people, they make the mistake of coming too hard and then like it falls apart. Like if you want to get married to somebody, optimize for the number, then the text, then the next date and the next day. And so if you look at that, the leading indicator of a term sheet, it's a good conversation and some high level financials. The leading indicator of a great due diligence process is, is the first thing you send them. What is the first thing you, they ask for? Send me your financials, right? Yeah. If the financials are not prim and proper, then they won't poke in other places. Now, they really love the business and they understood that we're bootstrapped and then we have this, uh, some of this information. But they really worked with us to help us through this. And it was, yeah. it's, it's the great, I guess, high regard for, for Radian that they really loved the business. They had run research on the market, the Radian Capital folks. They had, they had yeah. done a lot of... They, they did their homework on the market and they loved the market and they, they got to love us. And so they, they helped us through the process. But what I'm saying is if your financials, like, you know, you ask yourself, I mean, you guys are the experts. I'm not, you see this movie every day. When, when an M&A or any transaction happens, what is the key thing they ask for is the financials, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, typically they would be asking for a data room and you, all your yeah. advisors would have organized all that financial information in a really digestible package with no mistakes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. If, and if it is not super digestible, yeah. then what, what does that do? It either derails the deal or if, yeah. if they're still excited because they know, right? Sometimes you just talk to customers, you know the market pull, you look at the bank account and the balance, like it can't be. They can't have so much money in the bank and, and growth and like, so then, then, you know, so then they, they walk you through it. But like, what I'm saying is fix the leading indicators, the lagging indicators will solve itself. So you know, to give you another example, startups are built in phases. So first phase is validation. You have an idea, you got to get 10 people to pay you to try it out. What is the leading indicator that 10 people will pilot with you is you go and have a hundred conversations. If you don't have a hundred conversations. Those things are not going to happen. When you get to product market fit, everyone says figure out product market fit. But what really is product market fit? To me personally, product market fit is when customers who said they'll use your product to try it out, they keep using it. They love it. So what is the lagging indicator or success metric of product market fit? It's retention. Now, everyone says fix retention. How are you going to fix retention if you haven't looked at the leading indicator of retention? What is that? Engagement. If I'm not using the product for the intended use case day in, day out, even if I signed a, a, an annual contract, I'm not going to. So it's the same way with this, right? The first thing you're sending in there is financials. Make sure that is clean. It calms the rest of the conversation down. Make sure the execs 
the other things we did well, execs are aligned with the conversation. So you don't want to have North and South messaging. Like this is great companies, great relationships are built on great alignment. What is the purpose? Like, what is the forever? What is the vision? What does the world look like? Because we exist. How do we do it? The mission and how do we behave? The, the vision, mission, values should be crisp. This is the other piece of advice that will solve it, right? One is having crystal clear financials, but, the, but the, the key thing here is also communication. The job of a leader is to clearly articulate the vision to excite, inspire, and motivate people. And you got to do this day in, day out. Just to tie that back to M&A, right? That story, right? Certainly the financials has to be, it has to be perfect. The story is really that second piece. And having somebody who knows the buyer and what the buyer wants to hear as that story can tweak your story a little bit for each buyer. And that creates competition and that creates great outcomes. So I really appreciate all this time. I am going to ask you one last question, which is, you know, who would you like to thank in your life for all your kind of professional and personal success so far? Definitely. My mom, my mom never worked a day in her life to stay at home, to look after us. And, you know, I thank her for that, for giving up her career when she could have had one. Uh, And my wife, she sacrificed a lot. I mean, being the wife of an entrepreneur, who never brought money home for 10 years is very hard when you have a family and you're living in the Bay Area and she persevered and persevered. So those two people, of course, you know, I like to say that there is no self-made human being on this planet. Maybe, <laughs> maybe there was one, but, uh, but there's none, right? And everyone says it takes a village. I'd like to say it takes a community. And, and lots of people to thank. My, my parents, my grandparents, my, my wife, my co-founder, Alex, if he had never asked me to join him to, on this mission to build Boast, it would never happen. My uh, co-founder in the Traction community, our co-founder in Traction community, Ray, who runs Launch Academy, if he didn't say, I'll work with you, because we're a bootstrap company, you can only do so many things. So building a community alone is hard. So we built it with another community builder. That wouldn't have happened. Um, if Jason Lemkin, if, if, I, if he didn't help us so much, meaning he gave us free boots at Boast, he made intros to some, custom, some partners that ended up being multi-million dollar deals for us annually. If he wasn't there, he wrote the forward on my book. So there are a lot of people to thank, man. But, you know, if I had to take it to grassroots level, it would be my mom. Because without her perseverance and and my wife's perseverance, I wouldn't even have the opportunities to meet any of these people, right? I would be getting, I would be, I'd be having a job somewhere. (laughs) You know, I'll I'll tell you a funny story. My name has an E in it, Lloyd with an E. And I kept asking my wife, mom throughout life, why did you throw an E in Lloyd? Everyone mispronounces it. It's so funny. People make fun of it. And she said, someday you'll have a business and you'll want to trademark your name. And you won't be able to trademark that name. So I feel like if she didn't will that into existence, it probably wouldn't happen. That's awesome. Lloyd, thank you. Thanks so much for the time and sharing the stories and awesome advice. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out Podcast are for entertainment purposes only. 
This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.